everyone has a definition of love. You go to any wedding and whatever the guy or girl officiating says something about love. We all define love. The first song we ever taught our son Elijah was a song about love from the great theologian John Mayer. <laughs> love is a verb. Love is a verb. It ain't a thing. It's not something you own. It's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. And then Elijah would kick in. You got to show, show, show me. Show, show, show me. And it goes on forever. And John Mayer's point is love is something you do for someone. It's action. It's not just this fluffy stuff you talk about. Love moves towards people. Love is a verb. It does stuff. And the Apostle Paul and God agreed because in Romans 12, 9 through 12, when Luke unpacked that, he talked about what love does. It moves towards people. But then here's the reality that sets in. Love may be an action, and it may move towards others, but it is hard. Love hits snag after snag after snag. Amen? Married people? Amen. Parents? Amen. Grandparents? Amen. Love hits snags. God knows that because he created us. And what I love about the Bible, other than the fact it's where I meet Jesus time and time again, it matches up with reality. So we go to Romans 12, 9 through 12, and God gives us this definition of love. Genuine love. Love is this. And then immediately after, God just doesn't leave the conversation. He says, okay, here's what love is. Now here's all the snags you're going to run into. And you remember what we started with. Starting in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Love is a verb even towards your enemies. First snag. So I'm supposed to love my sweet little four-year-old and that guy I hate? Yes. And then he hits another snag. You go to verse 13, or chapter 13. Let every person be subject to their governing authorities. Whew. So love actually plays itself out in how I function as a citizen? Yes. Well, how so? You submit. What? To that guy or that girl or that guy or this system? Yes. Love hits snags, and God knows that. And he talks about love for this amount of time, three verses, and then he talks about loving your enemies, and then he talks about loving your government, and now we get to this next snag, which is in the church, chapter 14, this long, and he talks about the snags you hit in the context of the church. And the big snag here is you're going to run into Christians who you agree with on the big things of life. God, Jesus, Trinity, salvation, the cross, substitutionary atonement, heaven, hell, eternal rewards, eternal damnation. But you're going to disagree with on all the minor stuff. And you're going to butt heads. Any amens? We have we butt I was talking to one guy before the service who has been a pastor before and preached us at a service of a church who liked to major on the minors. And this rubs people the wrong way because we want to think our minor issues are big deals. And Paul says, love, genuine love, move towards people. John Mayer, love is a verb, you move towards people. How am I going to move towards people who I disagree with on every level? Apostle Paul, God, speak to this issue now. So what we're going to do, two, two weeks here, this week is going to be the attitude you take towards Christians you disagree with. 
Disagree in what? We can call it the areas of freedom, the gray areas, the non-essentials, however you want to word it. It's the issues that aren't salvation-based. So this first week, we're going to talk about what's the attitude we take in those instances as people who are trying to love and do, and love is a verb towards people. And then next week is going to be the action. Chapter 14, interestingly enough, in this big section of love, spends a whole chapter talking about church disagreements. God's on to something. We like to argue. We like to think we're right, and they're wrong, and my rightness is far more right than them. And Paul says, hold up, love is a verb, let me show you what this is going to look like in the context of your church. I think Paul's going to shape three big things for us. I think he's going to talk to our hearts, and he's going to say, in your hearts, choose to welcome those people. And then he's going to speak to our minds, and he's going to say, don't just welcome them, but in your mind, truly, truly develop deep convictions. Just don't be this wishy-washy, mamby-pamby, you don't really believe anything sort of person. But in your mind, have solid convictions. That's good. And then where he spends the bulk of time, the word judgment is used a ton in this passage, is in your soul, focus, focus, focus on your own eternal judgment, which is coming. And out of those things, those shapings of your mind and your heart and your soul, now you can have the attitude towards people you disagree with. Amen? So let's jump into this. First section here is, what is this snag specifically we run into in Romans 14? Remember, Paul is writing to church or churches, and he's going to bring up this snag. He's in the love section. Snag one is your enemy. Snag two is the government is annoying. Well, submit to him. Snag three, Christians are annoying. Well, let's talk about that. Let's read this. 14 verse 1. What's this snag? Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What is the first snag? He says, There are people who are weak in faith, and you don't bring them in just to quarrel over opinions. What does weak in faith mean? That seems to be the issue. It's not salvation faith, because that would be no faith. He's saying these people have faith, these people have faith. The way this person's faith plays itself out is weaker. It's broken. It's cut. It's bandaged. It's bruised. It's not full. It's not complete. And you guys aren't supposed to come together just to fight about where the weak guy is wrong. That's the issue. Specifically, look at verse 2. In this church, let's see what everyone's arguing about. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Jump down to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. He's saying there are two Christians who see the exact same issue totally different. In this church, the issues were this. Some people were vegetarians. For health reasons, maybe, but there's a really good chance it had to do with past religious experience. There were Greeks who were getting saved. Greek culture was pagan. They sacrificed to idols and to false gods all the time, and they'd have these big orgies and meat fests and carnivals and fry up all this good food, and then they'd eat in celebration. And these Greek people were getting saved out of that, and the idea of meat just reminded them of their past false religion. So when they came into church, one thing that they saw is, 
unclean or unholy or not right was meat because of their past experience. Verse 5 says, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Who's Paul talking to here? Now he focuses on the Jews. Remember, the early church was Jews and Gentiles coming together. How do they intermingle? The Jews in Leviticus 23 had this huge Levitical system of how their national holidays were to work. This day is special. This week is special. These two weeks are special. This week is the Feast of Booths, and we got the Day of Atonement and all these special things. And they come into a church where Greek people have no idea what Yom Kippur and Day of Atonement and blah, 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 blah. What does all that mean? And Paul says, the Greeks have their past experience that are infiltrating how they think, and the Jews have their past experience who are infiltrating how they think. Who's the weak one? Paul says the weak one is the one whose conscience is still restricting him based off past experience. Does that make sense? So you come in with religious background and you're restricted in some sense. Paul is saying you are the weaker brother. The stronger brother is the one who knows his freedoms more. How do I know that? Down in verse 14 he says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So what is the snag we run into as we try to love others? Past experience, past traditions, past fill-in-the-blank really, really shape how we think about God and holiness and righteousness. And Paul says that's the issue. Here's the snag. This guy thinks this. This guy thinks this. What are we supposed to do? One thing I've always been weird about in church is chewing gum. Why? Because I used to go to Catholic Mass with my nana. And I had a piece of gum in my mouth once, and she said, Whoosh! You don't chew gum in church, young man. So I have this weird... So those of you chewing gum, I, I'm judging you right now. <laughs> we have man-made rules and systems and traditions and every sort of thing imposed on this freedom we have in Christ. This is a... This is a big deal. For those of you who are non-Christians, none of this applies to you because we're talking Christian to Christian. But I'll tell you this. If you're really trying to figure this thing out, figure God out, Jesus, the Bible, I'd ask you to listen in for this reason. God's about to give one of his policies. If God is the boss and this is his company, this is the culture he's trying to create. You can learn a lot about a company by going to the boss, talking to him, or you can walk around and just see the kind of environment and culture that's created in that company. And God creates wonderful environments and wonderful, graceful cultures because he is a God of grace, God of mercy, God of love. That's what he's trying to create here in the church is a, is a, a gracious, gentle, peaceful, welcoming bunch who all get along even though we disagree. Big time. Why is this snag so prevalent in Christianity? Might be a question. Think about that for a second. We're in the love section, and a whole chapter is spent on this. Churches split all the time. I just taught in youth group why there's so many religions. Christianity is split into millions of different branches. Why is this so prevalent amongst Christians? I came up with three. There's obviously more. But I think the first one is just ignorance. One pastor that we love, 
here in the area said this about Christians. God saves them stupid. Meaning, he doesn't save people who have this full head of knowledge about faith and the Bible and how all things should work. He saves stupid people who don't know anything about God and how this world should work. So we got a bunch of ignorant people around a bunch of other ignorant people. It's a lot of ignorance, me included. Just flat-out ignorance. We just don't know. That's why we open this up every week and we constantly grow and are transformed by the Holy Spirit through this word. But we're ignorant people. We just don't know. The other one is this. This one's interesting and, and so unique to Christianity. It's the nature of gospel ministry. What do I mean by that? There is a gospel message. Jesus Christ died to save the world. And he rose again to prove that he was God. And anyone who puts his trust and faith in Jesus Christ will be saved and spend eternity with God forever. God is in the business of restoring this whole world through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? That message now is being passed down vertically and horizontally. Vertically, I mean from generation to generation to generation, time period to time period, Middle Ages, Christendom, Europe, Civil War era, now postmodern. It is being passed down. It's being passed down. That, that's, it's one message that can be used in many different methods and molds, but it's the same message being passed down. And then it's being passed side to side. This same gospel message is being preached in China right now. Luke just preached it in Turkey. Someone's preaching it in Canada. Somebody's preaching it to Eskimos up north. Someone's preaching it down south. And it's being preached laterally as well. Here's the constant tension and rub is what parts of those cultures and those time periods really need to be held onto and kept as part of the gospel message? The answer is none. The gospel message is, is fine in and of itself, but it's hard to pass down. Older folks have their traditions. When they pass down their faith, it's going to be hard to distinguish what is actual, just the true essentials of the faith, and what's their tradition that came along with it. As I go to Latin America and try to preach the gospel, it's going to be hard to leave my American, white guy, middle America sort of culture behind me and just preach the message to that people. It's a message that is being times, time zones, and it's saving people all over. The nature of gospel ministry makes this important. Paul knows that. We're going to run into snags where we got to think about, okay, how essential is this? Okay, if it's non-essential, God, what do we do? Right here. And then the last one is easy, just pride. Ephesians 2 says we've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. We have nothing to boast in. So I've been saved. All my past sins, all my future sins are gone. I am completely 100% adored by God the Father in Jesus Christ. I've got nothing to boast in. But my heart wants something to boast in. So I'm going to create little side issues that I can be really good at so I can boast to y'all. So I'm going to raise my kids a certain way so that they turn out better than your kids so that I have something now to boast in. And I'm going to spend my money in a certain way so that I have actually something to boast in again. Because the cross took away all my boasting, so I'm going to add up these minor issues on my plate so people look at me and think, man, look at Josh. Isn't he amazing? His kids, the way he spends his money, his marriage. I mean, he's got it figured out. Anybody like that? Like, we just like to be seen as having it all together. We like to be better than others. It's called pride. 
God says he hates it. You listen when God says he hates something. But I think that's why this is so prevalent in Christianity. I read a book recently called The Gospel. Unique title, just The Gospel. Older pastor who's just gets it. And he has the simple equation that really helped me think through a lot of this. Gospel plus time plus safety. He was talking about what kind of culture do you want to create in your church? And he said, here's what you got to give your people. You give them the gospel. You preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And you give them lots of time and you give them lots of safety to kind of wrestle through this stuff. Because he said, people are unique people and it takes time to change. And we all have issues we're trying to be transformed in. So you give them the gospel. You keep preaching the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And you give them time to sort it all out. And you make your church a safe place where people can wrestle through these issues. Does that sound like a good church? Talk about God, give people time, and be gentle about it. That's what Paul's trying to get at in this passage here. Now the fun stuff comes. None of us are ever going to struggle with pagan meat sacrificed to idols. I don't know of any pagan festivals where they sacrifice meat in Gilbert. Is that available at a food truck somewhere? I don't know. <laughs> pagan food right here. Sacrifice to Zeus. Here's the turkey leg. And I don't know a ton of people who still wrestle with Sabbath regulations, and although I know that's probably more prevalent. So what are the non-essential issues that get bubbled up amongst our people? So here's just kind of the categories we see them in. Theological issues we see it in. At our church, we call these open-handed issues, meaning issues that we'll have conviction on, but we're not going to die over. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. We will never budge on that. What is the time frame and look like when Jesus comes back? I don't know. He's coming back. Is he coming back secretly before? Uh, I don't know. Figure it out yourself. Theological issues. Will your pets be in heaven? I don't know. Call channel 21. Traditional issues, just the traditions you bring in. Some of you were Lutheran, some of you were Presbyterian, some of you were Catholic, some of you were LDS, some of you were, you bring those traditions in. You bring them into this area of freedom, and you got to wrestle through your conscience and how all that plays itself out. Another one, philosophical issues. Not so much what you believe, but how what you believe plays itself out in every day. So there's a growing movement amongst some pastors who want to rid the world of youth ministry. I'd be out of job because they have this deep, deep conviction that youth ministry is not biblical. It's the parents' job, I agree with. Get rid of youth ministry. Those youth pastors are of the devil. I disagree with. <laughs> That's a philosophy question. You, you can go to tons of Proverbs to make your point in obscure sort of ways, but you're never going to land on solid ground. And finally, cultural issues. Just we all come from different cultures. What your culture say to certain things really matters to you. It doesn't matter to me, but it matters to you. So what are the big questions that kind of come up that are related to this issue of the Jews had a system of days that they saw as holy and right and good. 
And the pagans saw meat as everything wrong and unholy and unrighteous because it was tied to pagans. And they were disagreeing over how to view and work in that system. We don't deal with that. What do we deal with here? I just ran, this is a long list, but my point in doing this is just we all have opinions. And we all have opinions that lie outside of biblical absolutes. And we all have some strong opinions that may lie outside of biblical absolutes. Amen? I've never seen the word Republican anywhere in this Bible. Some of you would die for that. That's not in this. Just saying. Let's go through some questions. Is homeschooling the best option for kids today? In your head, yes or no? I don't care to hear your answer. I just want you to think. Is public school the best option for Christians looking to be outward focused? Yes or no? Is breastfeeding the best option for our children? One, one pastor I love said, all these young seminary guys come out with all these theological degrees and they're ready to fight every cult and every Roman Catholic with the wrong view of salvation in the world. He says, are you ready to fight an angry breastfeeding mom? <laughs> Those are the fights you're going to fight. Have you ever seen an angry breastfeeding mom? Jeez. Should I vaccinate my children? Should kids use Mr. and Mrs. when talking to adults? This is the first just personal story. My dad got saved. I was 18, came in the church later in life. I was a teenager, set in my ways. And the first rub where I realized I'm different than these church folks was this issue right here. People were making me address them as Mr. and Mrs. And I have only addressed people by their first name my entire life. And I get in the church and it's, hey, Bob, it's Mr. May to you, youngster. Is that uh, uh yep. well, Proverbs says you're supposed to, yeah, yeah, I know, we can go to Proverbs for lots of things, but you get my point. We have opinions that don't necessarily come out of the absolutes in here. Is it best for a mom to try and stay at home with her children? Should a mom stay at home with her kids, or should she work full-time, or part-time, or whatever? If you have an opinion in your head, yes or no, you have an opinion on a non-absolute that God doesn't speak to. Should I watch Breaking Bad, Dexter, Desperate how I had to call some sinful people in the church and ask them about. <laughs> what are some bad shows? I don't know any of them. <laughs> Should a Christian get plastic surgery for non-medical reasons? Should we tuck and pull and augment and... Should you wear a hat in church? This is another thing I've been reprimanded for, which gave me a bad taste in my mouth. And one of the first, like, big revelations of God in my head came with, I was waiting with my mentor, and I had my hat on, we went to pray, and I took it off, and he said, Son, God cares about your heart and your words to him. That hat means nothing to him. And it was just like a revelation. God really is not trivial and trite and after just these minor details. Should a Christian drink? Heck, whatever you say. <laughs> However you finish that. Should a Christian listen to rock music? Whatever that means. You get what I'm saying. We all have opinions that fall outside of the lane of biblical absolutes. Here's what's beautiful about this church and why I'm not stressed at all to teach this. I think our church and our leadership and the guys who have handed down leadership amongst time in redemption focus on the big things well. So these minor things we can joke about and maybe be convicted about a little bit, but the big issues... 
I think we do a good job of communicating and addressing and talking about over and over again. These are minor issues. We're going to talk about what Paul and God has to say to him. So with that, what do they say we should do? What should our attitude be towards Christian liberty? Firstly, in your heart, the Apostle Paul is going to say, don't judge them, but welcome them. Let's read verse 1 through 3 real quick. In our hearts, our heart should be a heart that's not judgmental, but welcoming. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That word for opinion is how you distinguish stuff. Do you give it an 8, a 10 on your importance scale? When me and my wife are fighting and we come to an issue where we just cannot agree on, which doesn't happen a lot, but when it happens, we're like, I don't know what to do. There's a little mechanism. We say, okay, what number is it for you? Zero to ten. She says, it's a ten. I say, well, for me, it's a two, so I'll totally just let you have this way. I want this tree in my yard. It's a 10.5 for me. My wife says, I don't care at all. Okay. His point is we give numbers to what we value. How important is homeschooling to you? It's a 9.999 repeating, which is the same as ten, math people. (laughs) That's a two. We have... We're not supposed to argue about how important or how true or how right or how the most natural, most God-honoring way we should do all these non-essentials. Don't bring them in just to fight about your opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. He says, you that are stronger in your faith are going to want to judge and look down on these people because their theological understanding is so childish. And you over here who are weak in your faith and have these, this baggage from your past still, you're going to look at them and despise them. And you guys are going to both be fighting about this stuff. You're going to be judging. You're going to be despising. It's both haughty eyes looking down on the other. One looking down because he believes it's a right and wrong issue. The other one because he thinks it's childish and stupid. Just grow up. Drink a beer. No, no, no. You're so wrong. Don't you get... And I have done this wrong. That's why I love this passage because I have messed this up time and time again. Because I got saved and I had good people pouring into me. And the idea of Christian liberty and Christian freedom and freedom in Christ really sunk in deep quickly. But then I'd walk around judging everyone who didn't figure this thing out. And I'd be annoyed with people who still had all these silly man-made regulations. And Paul slaps me right here and says, you were wrong. That's not the way you do this. You welcome them. Don't judge, don't look down, but welcome them. So here's just my caveat. You welcome them. Where do we welcome people? What are our front doors for people to get into our lives? Well, there's our literal front door. There's our first impressions with people. There's our social media accounts, which become probably the number one front door into our lives nowadays. How welcoming is your front door? All your access points into your life. If some Joe Schmo wanted to learn about you, and all he had was your social media, and he could create a collage out of your social media, what sort of welcoming person would he see in you? Or would he say, you hate illegal immigrants, and you hate Democrats, and you, I don't see much welcoming. I see a lot of judgmental stuff. Again, is politics wrong? No. It's God-given. Is being a Republican or Democrat? No. But Paul says, You should be welcoming, not just to argue. So just take that to heart. 
Paul says welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, here's what's interesting about this next point. You would think lots of people say we shouldn't fight. Let's just get along. Can't we all just get along? What would be the answer to really getting along? Here's what a lot of people say. Well, just squash everyone's strong opinions. Just don't let everyone have big, strong opinions. This is kind of what communism, just squash everyone down and everyone's kind of, everyone's the same level. But Paul and God here, or God through Paul says, no, instead of squashing down your opinions or your convictions, I want you to really dig down deep into your convictions. That seems odd. The way we're all going to get along is we're all going to be welcoming, not judgmental. But in those area of convictions where there is serious disagreement, I want you to develop those convictions fully. So that's our next point. In your mind, God wants you to develop your convictions completely. Convictions about the absolutes? Absolutely. Who is Jesus? He is God. How do I get to God? Through Jesus. Those we want to be sold on. But also in these side convictions, Paul is going to tell us, dig down deep and develop them. What's he say here? Don't be wishy-washy. Instead, be fully convinced in your own mind. Let's read verse 5 through 6 here. It says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see that? People are doing exact opposite things and honoring God and giving thanks to God with the same magnitude. This guy drinks to the glory of God. This guy abstains to the glory of God. This girl works outside of the home to the glory of God. This girl stays home to the glory of God. This girl wears makeup to the glory of God. This girl refuses to the glory of God. This person's homeschooled to the glory of God. This person is public school to the glory of God. You see that? Gray areas exist in Christianity. This is beautiful. God is not this tyrant of black and whites all over the place. He gets the big things figured out. Who am I? Who are you? You're a sinner. Let's love. Now let's talk about these gray areas where you're going to try to play God in. Here's what you do. You're welcome, but in your own mind, here's what I want you working on, young man, young lady. Develop those convictions, whatever they are. What does it mean to develop your convictions in a godly sort of way? I think three points. The first thing you need to be absolutely sold on is that the issue is not sinful. How you and your wife choose to do your finances and where she works, there's nothing sinful you can find in the Bible towards that. You and your not wife living together and how you're going to do finances in a home where you two aren't married... There's something sinful God has to say about that. Hebrews says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. Sin we speak to. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even laments the church because they do such a poor job of judging each other in the area of sin. He says, don't you know you're going to judge the angels? We are to judge sin because we know truth. So if it's sinful, stop doing it. If it's sinful, we're going to tell you about it because we love you. But if it's not sinful... Live and let live. The second thing we see here is each one should be fully convinced. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. The second thing is, is it honoring to Christ? Now this is where it gets a little, well, what does that mean? 
Figure it out in your own mind. Should you watch Breaking Bad? Don't know. I've never seen the show. But I know lots of godly people who have. Is it honoring to Christ? Is it rated R? Is that really the mechanism we're going to use? Some arbitrary man-made system of GPG, PG-13 on how we gauge things? I love rated R movies where there's lots of killing. Love it. Just love it. <laughs> I was watching Saving Private Ryan one time, and there's a great part in there. My wife walks in and is like, who did I marry? <laughs> rated R where it's sensual and crude and made for a 14-year-old perverted mind. Got a problem with. That's my own mind conviction I've come to after lots of mistakes. Naming the last one, taking my wife to a rated R movie that was crude and sensual, and I thought, this probably isn't the best thing for me as a husband and a leader and a protector of her heart. All of stay. Is that a blanket rule? Is that in the book of Joshua? Nope. That's just where I landed. You land where you land. Some of you have deep convictions. Some of you need to go a little deeper. Figure it out for yourself. And the last one is just really good. This is the best thing for me, we, us in this circumstance. I first said, this is the best thing for me, and I thought, selfish people could take that and run with that. This is the best thing for the people that it's going to impact most. Woman, should you get plastic surgery? Talk about it with your husband. If he's against it, God may have answered your question. If he's for it, God may have answered your question. What's it going to do to your daughter's view of things? Think through that. What's it going to do to other areas of your life? Again, this is, this is, there's no way for me to give you answers. Dale's our counseling pastor. Don't come to him and say, please answer all these questions for me. He's just going to help you think through the most honoring, God-honoring way for you to do it in your circumstance. Isn't this beautiful? God saves us in the person of Jesus. I get a personal relationship forever with the king of the universe, and then I come to find out he's a really good boss who's not a micromanager about little minute details. He's actually pretty gracious, and he lets us figure stuff out on our own. He lets us differ on things. And he lets two people in the same church sitting right next to each other have completely different convictions about very important things, like child-rearing and vaccinations, and they're sitting right next to each other, and they love each other, and they're supposed to be welcoming. Because he says, is it honoring? Are you giving thanks? Is it sinful? Answer those questions and live and let live. There's a proverb I go to a lot. In the abundance of counselors, there's safety. Talk to people. Talk to your pastors. Talk to your RC leaders. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to other Christians you respect. There's safety as you gather information is what God's saying there. Isn't this good? I've loved it. I wish all you guys could have studied with me. It's been a really good. God slapped me and said, you see how stupid you were? You still are stupid, but you see your stupidity in this verse pretty clearly. And then where he spends the bulk of the time is, in your soul, don't worry so much about others, but you really focus on your judgment, which is absolutely coming. The word judgment is the word that's used most here. He says, don't judge others. You focus on your coming judgment. Go to verse 4 with me, which we skipped over earlier. But this is the first hint at it. Paul says, 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. First thing we see is God is the Lord of that person. He is the master of that person. You two are waiters in his restaurant, and you look like an idiot when you're a waiter yelling at the other waiter. You are both serving the same king, and you're both doing it to the best of your ability based off your convictions in your heart. Stop worrying about that waiter. You bring your master his water as quick as you can with as much ice as he needs, and you do the best job possible for your master. Stop nitpicking other people. This is the worst part of being a parent. The kids just constantly fight. And my oldest nitpicks the other ones. And I say, shut up. You're not his mom or his dad or God or any sort of authority. And he's constantly nitpicking. Like, geez, I can't wait till you grow out of it. And he's going to be in church one day, a 30, 40-year-old man. And some guy's going to be preaching the same message. And it's going to be convicting him then too because we don't grow out of it. Because we're judgmental at our core. Because we think we're more special than we are. We forget about the truly special one. Verse 7 through 9 gets at another thing, mainly the lordship of Jesus. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Now, what does that mean in practice in your life? It's easy to amen it on a Sunday. When you're doing your taxes in April, Jesus is still Lord. And when you're thinking and talking about your neighbors, Jesus is still Lord. And when you're parenting behind closed doors, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is Lord of the living and dead. He is watching it all. We are playing for an audience of one. He's watching it all. And he's our Lord. And the only thing that matters is what he thinks of us at the end of the day. Lastly, verse 10 through 12. Keep our souls focused on this coming judgment. We are serving our master. He is our Lord watching it all. Verse 10. And one day we're going to stand before him. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every person, Christian, non-Christian, will face judgment. Christian judgment is different because all the bad has been removed. All reason for punishment Jesus took on the cross, says Colossians. Amazing. But 2 Corinthians speak to, speaks to a Christian judgment, and it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's talking to Christians there, because the verse right before that says, we want to live a life pleasing to him, and he's talking to Christians. And then he focuses them on judgment. One day you're all going to stand, and everything you've done is going to be weighed as either good or evil. You homeschooled your kids. Okay. Was it done with good intentions and good motives, or was it evil? 
How could that be evil? Pride, self-righteousness, judgmental attitude. And here's how I picture judgment happening. He holds them up and he sets a fire to them and the evil ones burn up. And we are going to have lots of our non-essential issues and our convictions we hold and the way we treated others burned up because we didn't live this passage outright. That's not a fear-based thing. That's just a sharpening sort of thing. God's not going to be mad and... He's a good judge. He's got to complete the deal. Everything needs to be judged. And Christian, all of our actions, all of our motives, everything's going to be judged. And what I get from this passage is you be welcoming as you can be towards others. And you go deep with your convictions. And then you carry them with such grace that most people don't even know where you stand. Blaise Pascal, I named my middle son after, he's a famous theologian. He says, the extent to which a good deed stops being a good deed is the extent to which it starts to lose its privacy. Mainly, the extent to which other people start to know about your reasons and your good intentions and why you do this and why you do that and blah, 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 blah. The start, as that gets public, mainly because of you, that starts to become not a good deed. And Judgment Day says that's going to be burned up as evil, potentially. Should you have convictions? Absolutely. Should we differ? Absolutely. We're very different, unique people. But what should be our focus? I am going to meet Jesus one day face to face. And the way I've treated people in the past for my smug, arrogant freedom I had in Christ is going to be burned up. And by God's grace, the transformation that is happening in the ways I've treated people more gracefully, who I fundamentally disagree with on things, well, God will say, that's good. Welcome. Here's your rewards. Amen? How does Jesus affect all this? Verse 3 says, Do not pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Christian, God has welcomed us into his mansion forever. And Christian, you and I are standing in the hallway arguing about what light bulbs to use in a linen closet. Enjoy God's presence, his forgiveness, his complete grace, his complete compassion on your life. Stop arguing about the non-essential things. Does God say they're not important? No. He says in your mind, make them as important as they need to be. But Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has welcomed me, a prideful, arrogant, stupid idiot, into his house. Who am I to go out and start to judge other people who are standing in the same undeserved house as me? I'm nobody. Jesus is everybody. He deserves our praise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you that you speak to this, that you don't leave it up to us because we would have created more rules and regulations and more religions and every sort of way for man to be exalted in this. But you say it simply, you have welcomed us, so we welcome others. God, this is really hard to do because people are complicated. Convictions go deep. Past traditions come into it. God, this is not easy, but by your grace, let us be a church, let us be a people, let us have redemption communities and families that really focus on the big things of life, like this crazy truth that you welcomed us sinners into your home by your grace. 
Let us not be a people who major on the minors, but focus on Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.